The words American journalists are using to describe what's happened to Russian troops in Ukraine this week, they're not kind. Humiliating is how the New York Times put it. The Washington Post went with embarrassing. Slate's Fred Kaplan, our war stories correspondent, he'd agree with all of those descriptors. After all, within a matter of days, Ukraine has managed to push Russian troops to the east so aggressively that some are said to have pedaled out on bicycles, leaving their tanks behind. But Fred is not surprised by any of this. He says, we've always known Ukrainian troops could mount an offensive like this. What's clear now is how quickly they can do it. What I've been surprised by is the speed with which they've mounted this counteroffensive and how far it's gone. I mean, you know, taking, you know, more than a thousand square miles in, in a matter of a couple of days. I mean, that that's extraordinary by almost anything in the annals of military history. Yeah, you've called it a wild success. I mean, it really is. I don't think even they were expecting quite this speedy a success. They being the Ukrainians. Yeah, and their American advisors. This sudden rout has caught Russia by surprise, too. You could tell that much if you checked out Russian state TV over the weekend. This happened so quickly that the propaganda ministers didn't have time to get their scripts prepared. So the panelists on these TV shows were, were so stunned and shocked that they, 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 for the first time in months, started describing what they themselves were seeing and hearing. Like this Russian politician, who is admitting it is absolutely impossible to defeat Ukraine using the tactics Vladimir Putin is using right now. This guy blames unnamed advisors to the president for this latest defeat. But still. That sort of says it all. The last time you were on this show to talk about Ukraine, we were talking about a stalemate. Has that changed? We will see. I mean, what will be interesting and perhaps crucial is whether the Ukrainians are able to exploit this breakthrough. You know, the Russians have tried to create one solid front, and they've been unable to do that. If the Ukrainians are able to do that, in other words, push the entire front forward toward Russia, then um, it's quite possible the war could be over quite quickly. But what would happen then? Today on the show, why even a military victory is not going to be simple. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. Can we talk about military tactics a little bit? Like, I keep hearing that Ukraine has staged a lightning assault on Russian forces. So break that down. What does this mean? Does it just mean fast? <laughs> well, but what do you need for fast? You need to have coordinated operations. You need to have armor, tanks, and artillery coordinating, moving together. This is something that the Russians have not been able to do in this entire war. So it's a coordinated attack, and also it's an offensive attack. One thing that hasn't been 
mentioned in, in the press recounts I've seen, but that somebody on the ground told me about, is that a while back, the Ukrainians obtained about 200 old Soviet-era T-72 tanks from Poland. And quite a few of these have been used in, in this counteroffensive. There have been reports of the United States helping them with tactics and strategy. And, and I think we'll learn more about this when the histories are written. U.S. intelligence has provided near real-time information on where the Russians are, where they're moving, where they're going, what, what they're saying on their radios. This has been crucial to every success that the, that the Ukrainians have, have achieved uh, from the beginning of the war till now. So the Ukrainians are resourced and they're also organized. And this assault was also kind of a one-two punch, right? Pushing south, which distracted troops and, and sucked troops away from the east, and then simultaneously going east because you knew that those places were more vulnerable now. And so that allowed Ukraine to gain more ground. It is true, though, that the Russian forces have been spread out very thinly. And if you're on the offensive or the counteroffensive, and if you have good intelligence, you can see where on the front lines the, the enemy is stretched the thinnest. And that's where you make your big move. That's where you... Because it's the Achilles heel. Yeah, that's where you really concentrate your forces and, and really make a big blitzkrieg in, in that. And then one reason why the Russians abandoned uh, was that, I mean, ideally what, what Ukraine would have done was then encircle the troops. And so then you've got them from all directions. And they did mount a retreat partly to prevent the forces from being enveloped. So that Ukraine couldn't encircle them. Yeah, right. Exactly. I was listening to one description of Ukraine's counteroffensive and how it came together. And the reporter basically said that the U.S. guided the planning here. They suggested this two-pronged attack with Ukrainian forces pushing south into Kherson, which would distract Russian forces from elsewhere and make it easier to simultaneously push into Kharkiv, around Kharkiv. And I was surprised reporters were learning so much about the U.S.'s involvement here, because this description really does make it sound like the U.S. is helping to steer the battle plan. And it made me wonder if that was a little risky for the U.S., which is kind of sought to tamp down Russia's claims that this war is a war with the United States. Yeah, it is interesting. I've been kind of surprised by that myself. I, I think in the beginning you saw you know, reporters were just kind of hinting at it in the 15th paragraph. But after a while, you know, sources were going on the record about this, that they wanted it known. And I, I guess trying to come up with a reason why this might be the case, it may be that, you know, the big fear in this, one big fear, is that if the Russians are really losing badly, uh, Putin might take desperate measures you know, launching back with chemical weapons or a couple of tactical nuclear weapons. And maybe, yeah, and, you know, maybe this is a way of the United States telling Putin, hey, don't even think about escalating this war. We have got you surrounded in every which way you can imagine. We know what you're doing at every step. Don't even think about doing something like this because we're going to preempt whatever it is that you do. So it could be that there is sometimes value not in being secret, but in letting the other guy know exactly what you know. You don't necessarily have to tell him how you know, but you tell him, look, yeah, we have you down. We're pinning you down. We know what you're doing. We know what you're saying. 
don't even think of trying to, to escalate this. It won't work. After the break, if Vladimir Putin is starting to lose control of the narrative in Russia, what will he do next? Since the beginning of the war, Vladimir Putin has kept tight control over Russian media, essentially running a pro-war propaganda machine. But as troops streamed out of Ukraine this weekend, there wasn't really time to spin what was going on. So now there's talk that Russia's losses could spark concern, even from Putin's staunchest supporters. This is now the question. How quickly, how, how far, how wide is it going to spread among the Russian population in Moscow, in Petersburg, elsewhere, that this is all nonsense, that the Russians are getting their asses whipped. And at that point, at what point are they going to start blaming not this general or not that minister of defense or not this intelligence ministry, but the man in the Kremlin who otherwise controls everything in Russian politics, Vladimir Putin? At what point do they start blaming it on him? And then at what point is it possible for a handful of the people around him to get together and and do something about it? Right now, there is no mechanism for doing this. I mean, Putin, this is one thing that's worth noting. Not since the age of the czars has a Russian leader, has there been such one-man rule in Russia. Even under Stalin, there was a Politburo. And the Politburo was basically a rubber stamp, but still there was a Politburo. And 10 years after Stalin's death, Khrushchev, who U.S. intelligence thought ruled Russia, this whole Soviet Union with with an iron fist, was thrown out by the Politburo. Right now, there is no mechanism, no formal mechanism for the leader, the president, the general secretary, whatever, to be thrown out. Can something be created spontaneously if things are starting to get just too horrible for Russia's position, both among Russian people and and in the world? Russian troops left chaos in their wake as they retreated this weekend. They bombed electric and water infrastructure in the city of Kharkiv, causing widespread blackouts. Electricity has largely been restored at this point, but some worry that Russia may increasingly turn to these kinds of tactics as they continue to lose ground. We may rapidly be reaching the point that that many people have feared, and it's the moment that has prevented the U.S. and all of the NATO allies from getting involved in the war more directly, you know, from sending troops, from sending pilots. Uh, And that is, will... Putin lash out. I mean, you know, you you can't ignore the fact that this guy has a few thousand nuclear weapons. (laughs) And uh, yeah, we don't know what state of mental health he's in. Uh, He is the only guy in charge. And what might he do if he's on the verge of losing? And so it's a perilous moment. It's a perilous moment. Putin has recently threatened to entirely cut off gas and oil to Europe over the winter. And of course, we're watching as Europe gets very nervous about what the winter is going to look like. And many people have talked about how this Ukrainian offensive is really, it's for the Ukrainians, it's also for the Europeans to demonstrate, like, we can do this, please stick with us. That's right. 
That's right. That's I think I think in fact that is the number one aim. They needed to demonstrate that they were worth sticking with very very soon. But even if Ukraine wins this, it doesn't really solve Europe's problem, does it? That's what I keep thinking about. Well, here's the thing. I think um, I think this might be the last winter that that huge swaths of, of Western Europe are dependent, heavily dependent on on Russian oil and gas. They're, they've all gone systematically looking for other sources of energy. France and Germany have a deal. You know, they have a deal where, hey, if you run out of gas, we'll give you gas. If, if we run out of oil, you'll give us oil. Russia has created you know, a, a new reality where, where Western Europe is, is far more unified than, than, than it's been maybe ever. But yeah, this, this winter is going to be a, a big challenge, even if, even if Germany is only 10% dependent on Russia for gas. And if Russia continues to, to just not supply it, that's a lot in terms of the price of, of gas or what you have to turn your thermostat down to. And then at that point, the Germans can sound very brave right now saying, oh, yeah, we'll stick with the Ukrainians. You know, will they when it's, uh, you know, 10 degrees outside? One of the things we haven't talked about is the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. It is still in Russian control. The last nuclear reactor there was shut down recently. And what they are doing in the short term, it's to, to decrease the risk of an unintentional nuclear accident. But in the long term, it is still very precarious because it is not a process. Does it trouble uh, you, given everything we've said here about the state of the war, that this asset is sort of out there and something that could be used by the Russians in some way to advance what they want to do in Ukraine? Well, I don't know. I mean, uh I think Russia would rather take over this asset and use it for their own energy supplies. They also, yeah, it, they, I think they want to lord it over as a threat. Uh, whether they actually like blow up the power plant, I don't know. I mean, you know, this stuff spews in all directions. But yeah, that's part of why they've taken it over is they want to keep us nervous. They want to keep us from, and the Ukrainians, from exploiting any momentary advantage too far. When I think about what happens next in this war, I think a lot about where China stands, because China stood by Russia. And this week, China's leader is going to meet with Vladimir Putin. And you can tell the meeting is important because it's the first time Xi has left China since COVID started. Do you imagine that that conversation is very different after what's happened over the last week? Well, it's going to be crucial. I mean, yeah, China's in a spot, too. They, they, they've allied themselves with, with Russia. However, they still want to have relations with us. They want to have relations with the rest of the world. And they don't want to be saddled with a guy who might turn out to be a loser and whose war is going to sink more and more resources. It's interesting that Russia is getting drones from Iran, not from China, hmm. that they've just bought a zillion missiles and rockets from North Korea, not from China. Now, in fact, all these things might be provided by China th through North Korea and through Iran. But it's interesting that China doesn't want to be put on the map as providing this stuff directly. They have not been providing Russia with arms. They've been buying Russian oil. They've been conducting trade that Russia no longer has with, with the West. But they've been keeping more of a low profile on the military side. Huh. 
You pointed to Anne Applebaum writing in The Atlantic for something she said that I want to talk to you about because I found it interesting, too. She said, it's time to prepare for Ukrainian victory, but that's not a prediction. It's a warning. Can you explain? Well, you know, let's say Ukraine wins. Okay, what happens to Ukraine? Is Ukraine a member of the EU? Is it part of NATO? Where are the dividing lines in Europe? Where do we go from there? Do we start slowly restoring relations with Russia under completely different terms? And I think she was also assuming that under this new reality, Putin may long may no longer be there. And he's the devil we know. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Who who comes along to replace him might be someone better, it might be someone worse. Someone who decides I'm gonna restore the empire effectively, you know. So she's saying we have to prepare for this possibility because it's not simple. It's not, okay, we won, now let's go home. Uh, no, it, there's a new reality that, that we have to adjust to. And how are we going to do it? Fred Kaplan, I'm so grateful for your perspective. Thanks for coming on the show. Anytime. Thank you. Fred Kaplan is Slate's War Stories correspondent. He's also the author of The Bomb, Presidents, Generals, and the Secret History of Nuclear War. And that's the show. If you're a fan of what we're doing here at What Next, the best way to show your support is to join Slate Plus. Go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus and sign up today. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Mary Wilson, Carmel Del Shad, and Madeline Ducharme. We're getting a ton of support right now from Anna Phillips and Jared Downing and Anna Rubinova. We are led by Alicia Montgomery and Joanne Levine. And I'm Mary Harris. I'll be back in this feed tomorrow. Catch you then.